One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's Thinking Basketball for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to Game 4 of the NBA Finals. That's where we are, right, Cody? Game 4 of the NBA Finals? I think so. I think they may have all happened at the same time or all at once or who knows at this point. Is that a movie? Well, that movie was about the NBA Finals, I think. Everything is happening all at once. I feel like Dr. Manhattan in uh, Watchmen where time is time is a parallel experience at this point in the NBA Finals. What a series. I think it's delivered. It is 2-2. We're going to talk all about it. Still look a little forward, forward to uh, Game 5. We'll talk about Game game four, but I think the big story coming out of game four is Steph Curry with a transcendent NBA Finals game. We were looking it up right before the show. Just the 11th player in the history of the NBA Finals to have a 40-point game on 70% true shooting. They are rare. It means you are cooking at volume and you are extremely efficient And within a game, uh, I once did a study on this, kind of like outlying scoring games. Those things spike your team's win percentage just because you're literally taking so many shooting possessions and converting them above the expected value of those shooting possessions. And you can see it with a guy making seven three-pointers like Curry. It's like you take like 21 shots and you end up with 43 points and you have a few free throws sprinkled in there. Um, It's the first time Curry's done it. The list is absurd. It's like Michael Jordan from his... Portland series where he hit all those three-pointers. LeBron James had one in the bubble. Jimmy Butler had one in the bubble. Does anything in the bubble count? I I still don't know how I feel about this. It was weird without fans and the difference in officiating and backdrop of the shooting and all that stuff. Anyway, um, George Mikan did this twice. Somehow, this is the most impressive to me. George Mikan had two 40-point games on 70-plus percent true shooting in the NBA Finals in 1949 and 1950. And he did it back when league-wide true shooting was like was like 40-some, like 45%. Or so. it, was like, it was like at least 10% lower than it is now. So special tip of the cap to George Mike in there. And then there's one more guy uh, who has done it twice. Um, and Cody, you want to talk about him? I think, well, I'll pass it to you. Well, for, first, just so I can get all of L.A. off our backs, no, Ben is not saying your championship doesn't count. Like when he says, does anything count? The 
bubble. No, yes, all we- the cha- everyone knows who listens to this show. If you're new to this show, all the championships count. We've discussed this many times. Anyway, the one player who has done it uh, twice recently and the only player to do it in a single series is who, Cody? Giannis and Tedegumbo. I mean, <laughs> I, we passed it to you and you couldn't decide how you wanted to go with the last I name. I really butchered that name, didn't yeah. I? Can, yeah. can, can I just like say his first name? Yeah, just call him G. G. So yeah. G, that one guy that plays for that one team in the Midwest. 34 for the I, Bucks. I mean, two in the single series. I think he had three 40-point games in that series and just two yeah. of them were the hyper-efficient ones. One of them, the 50-point game. Um, yeah, unbelievable to see it twice in a single series. Yeah, so, so the talking point... Um, and, and goodness knows I've spent a lot of time over the years talking about how we form narratives about players and these sort of quote unquote biases that pull us in different directions. And then we get stuck in these traps. We won't belabor that here today, but I think the the talking point about Curry is very interesting because there's a lot of people who are like, this is his first great finals game. This is the first time I've seen him do this. And it kind of feels like, um, you know, after the uh, so-called Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, all of the like literature and art of the time just ignored the Spanish flu when it was over. That The influenza epidemic around the planet, they didn't acknowledge it. It didn't happen. There weren't like all these books and, and things written about their experiences with the Spanish flu. It just never happened. And that's how I feel like some of Steph Curry's previous playoff games, and especially in the finals are for some people, they're just like, wow, this is the first time I've ever seen Steph Curry really get hot in a finals game. And I'm like, did did 2015 game five, does that just not exist? Uh, a 2-2 game against the Cavs before uh, either of those teams, Cleveland or Golden State, had won a title. Curry had a, a huge game in that way, like 37 or 38 points in the swing game five. And then my personal favorite, which I think at this point, if you made a video about, I think would be called like the forgotten finals explosion or something. Um, 2019 game three, Kevin Durant's out with the torn Achilles against the Raptors. Clay Thompson's out because he hurt his hamstring at the end of game two. The Raptors are an historically great defense in the postseason, great defense in the regular season, and they're a great defense that's like, we need to stop Steph Curry. They box and won him the game before, and they ran a few box and won possessions in this game three. So all these Warriors were out. He was out there with Quinn Cook, Alfonso McKinney, Andrew Bogut came out of retirement, DeMarcus Cousins was coming off his injuries, hobbling around. He at least had Draymond Green out there. Uh, Cody, the man put up 47 points, um, like, and we just watched the, we just rewatched all his baskets in that. I don't know why I said baskets, like I'm from Indiana in the 1960s or something. Um, we we rewatched all his field goals in that game, and uh, is it fair to say that he had a little bit of defensive attention in that game? Oh, I think there were a couple times where I'm like, man, Kawhi, Kawhi doesn't know what to do with this guy right now. He's just toasting him right now. Yeah, so I, I don't think we need to belabor it, but it is just really fascinating to me how these kind of things build up over the years where you you experience something as a fan. Like, all these people saw these games, and then they just genuinely kind of don't get encoded in the, in the file cabinet in their memory, basically. Do you think it has anything to do with them losing by 14 in that game? Like, I legitimately think that's the reason people don't bring it up, because it doesn't count as an awesome game. Unless it's that one LeBron game where JR completely lost it for them in game one. What was that in 2018? And that's, that yeah. feels like the only great game that counts in a loss. Uh, 
I mean, for me, I've, I've said this many, many times. I think some of the most impressive performances I've ever seen that catch my attention are in a loss. Usually that's because you're playing a, an opponent that's better, right? Like, again, this goes back to making basketball an individual sport when it is so clearly, undeniably, definitively a team sport where the other four players on the court, the other nine players on the court will have a larger influence on the game than a single player. And just because a single player has a large influence on the game relative to like soccer or American football or hockey or whatever, pick your other team sports, doesn't mean that those other nine guys don't dictate the outcome. And in this case, yeah, I think it's totally a forgotten game because they kept it close until like the end of the third quarter and then it was too much. But again, I'm if I'm evaluating an individual and saying like, here's this one game where you know you have none of your players. And from a team building standpoint, they had no depth because they traded Durant and a top heavy lineup for depth, right? Um, I don't even remember. I think, did Sean Livingston play in that game? I can't even remember. It may oh, have I- been... It may have been the end of Sean Livingston, but either way, you had like, you know, Quinn Cook, Alfonso McKinney, all, all these guys um, who were trying to fill up roster spots. And it just felt like a Herculean, impossible task. And the entire defense is geared toward you. And you come out and you almost score 50 points against that defense. Um, those are the kinds of things that have stood out in my head for literally decades about players, you know, like a Reggie Miller series where his team loses to a better team, a Kevin Garnett series where they play the Spurs in the first round. Garnett pops off the screen to me, and then no team plays the Spurs better than the little Minnesota Timberwolves. play. It's that kind of thing. So I think you're spot on, but it's always just been so bizarre to me that people are like, oh, I'm evaluating an individual, but because the team won, then that game couldn't have been good from the individual. I think what's particularly interesting about Curry, too, and not to give people a good idea for a bad topic on some kind of talk show, but I feel like if he had lost this last game, it just would have been like, oh, yeah, Curry, he's the kind of superstar that can get his points, but he's not able to win. Like, look at these every game that he's played that's been excellent in the finals, lost it. Like, come on, if this was anyone else, Jordan, Jordan has a great game and his team just wins all the time. I feel like that could have been a good 15 minute segment somewhere. Why are you giving people ideas they'll probably do that segment anyway they'll probably do the segment if this if this was a loss does it prove uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move on i think the really interesting thing and it's and it's why we started with curry um the really interesting thing about this series for me when i take a step back is it's the first final series and i mentioned this in the video on game 4 it's the first final series where he's being defended more like a normal player would be defended. Um, normal in quotes, because we know he's a star and he's getting attention. And even Boston's defense that we're going to talk about in a second is sort of designed with him and the offense in mind. But the Cavs, especially the Raptors, these other teams have basically said for a long time, many other playoff opponents have basically said, we don't want him to go out there and have these games like it's the 2016 regular season and he's just, you know, dancing all over the court into seven, nine, ten three-pointers, 41 points through three quarters. We don't want that. So we're going to pay attention to him. We're going to give him special rules. 
We're going to make sure we have the right big men on the court. We're going to make sure we have the right chasers on the court. We're going to make sure we have the right switching schemes on the court. We need to know where he is at all times. And we're even going to try to touch him up. We're going to, that was the Cavs' favorite term. We're going to try to bump him, push him around. Just everything is for him not to score. And what that has done, and at times with some incredible success, which I think people overlook, and at times with marginal success, not, not so great, is it has opened up a ton of offense for his teammates to the point where there are possessions in the NBA Finals repeatedly where the Warriors get to play four on three, basically. Uh, of course, Draymond Green has made a living of this. And the Celtics have said, I imagine at this point, very deliberately with some kind of calculation, they've said, we are going to take our chance with our defensive strengths by leaning on the other side of the trade-off. In other words, if we played Curry that way, there, the trade-off may be his scoring goes down and his shot creation for others go up and others have to beat us, but that might take us out of our our defensive concepts. That might put us in a slightly more uncomfortable position. So instead, we're going to play him this way. We're going to drop heavily when they bring up our big men uh, heavily is not the right term. We're going to drop repeatedly. The, the drop is very high, but it's still a drop, and we'll talk about that. We're going to drop, and we're going to give him shots so he has to beat us with his scoring, but we're going to take Draymond Green out of the offense. We're not going to spend the offense, uh, the, the defensive possession, chasing him around and double-teaming off the ball. We're not going to trap and worry about all this four-on-three behind the play. So the idea behind a drop like that is it makes that pick-and-roll moment harder to create for others, and you give up, for instance, a pull-up, or you really ask the on-ball defender to push the ball handler downhill, stuff like that. So that, to me, is fascinating. It's fascinating on a number of levels that we'll talk about moving forward in the series, but it's also fascinating from this standpoint of, like, I've been very impressed. It goes back to Steve Nash, Magic Johnson, even Larry Bird, Oscar Robertson, Michael Jordan. When you can force the defense to help and get your teammates wide open shots. It usually leads to the best offense. You know, LeBron James, it usually leads to the best offense we ever get to see in basketball. Curry has done that for years. Teams have decided to make others beat them. And now the Celtics are doing the opposite. And it's the first time people are like, well, Curry might be really good. (laughs) I think the thing that's important to remember is anything you do in basketball has like a a push-pull, like everything is a double-edged sword. No matter what strategy you're going with, there's going to be some kind of a a negative effect to it. So like I feel like the the prevailing conversation, especially in like 2016 starting, was the if you hedge on Curry, you get the four-on-three situation. Draymond Green is incredible in that. He's going to get someone an open look. You can't hedge against them because of that. Now all of a sudden, like everyone's like, I don't understand why Boston keeps dropping. But like there's, there's a really clear, a really clear play i think it's about 720 in the third quarter um there's a drop and Derek white is chasing curry and curry gets the pull-up three off but if you slow it down white is so close like if curry had a regular human being's jump shot speed white is blocking that okay is that the is that an off ball play they run the split and he comes off the curl on the far sideline yep yep that's yeah 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 so keep going yeah so like if if we are defending, like you said, if we're playing a regular player, that's a block, that's a stop, right? And so Boston is trusting their chasers, and when you watch them, they're not doing a bad job. Like Smart and White, White might even be a better chaser than Smart because of his length and his ability to just get like really skinny and get go thin, around yeah. like that. Yeah. So uh, it, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those things that if that happens, and then later on in the game, we have the famous end of the fourth quarter somewhere in the fourth quarter where they trap him like one time, and then Looney gets a layup. 
that's the thing. Whatever defense you're going to throw at Curry, like this is what makes him literally one of the best players of all time is that it doesn't matter what scheme you're going to go with against him. He's going to do something to beat it or the the Warriors and the way they're constructed is going to do something to beat it. And I think a key, like people keep talking about like, oh, Draymond Green, this is a bad regression. He's having a bad playoffs. Maybe it's because they're not giving him the four and three situation. Maybe Draymond becomes more unlocked if they start hedging and trapping and things like that more. So you always have to look at this double sided uh, coin of, of how to play basketball. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So here's the question. Two, two-part question. Do you think the Celtics will continue to play him this way for the remainder of the series? And part two, what would you do? It's two really great questions. I mean, honestly, thinking back to game four, it, it took Curry just exploding for them to pull off the win, right? Like Boston had the lead for the majority of the game. And we see that like a lot of the Warriors are struggling with creation. Like Draymond passed up a couple, like one very clear offensive rebound and shot. Like he's not trying to find his own scoring offense. I don't know. Maybe you bring the drop higher. Like, I think that's what they switched to is Horford was dropping. Like his drop started above the three point line, but he just backpedaled. I don't hate it. I honestly don't hate it because then you don't allow Draymond to get into his flow at all. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up. The, the high drop, our friend, Mike Prada, um, author of the upcoming book spaced out he had this great tweet with a picture of horford in his high drop like five feet outside the three-point line and he said something like boy drop coverage has come a long way since roy hibbert um (laughs) the thing is and i get to this in the video but you know when you're making a video it sometimes is subtle the explicit point for me about the high drop is that curry knows he knows what horford knows so curry knows when he turns the corner that Horford, no matter how high he is, is going to start moving backwards. And if you're not connected to Curry, right, if you're literally three feet of cushion instead of one foot, if you're five feet of cushion, doesn't matter how high you start the drop, as Curry dribbles downhill, he's pushing Horford backwards in a sense, right? It's like a repellent effect because of that drop. So there's multiple times in, I think, all four games, if not all four, three or three of the four, something like that, where he's had a high drop. It almost looks like he's at he's at the level of the screen. But because he's not playing it straight up, because he's worried about being blown by, and they are genuinely in a drop coverage, because he's worried about the roll man getting free and that short roll action that the Warriors run. And I think in general, the Celtics want to avoid ping-ponging the ball around when, when Golden State's offense is, is humming and playing that beautiful game of offense. Because Curry knows that, it's almost like he doesn't care where Horford is. So it can look, right, it looks ridiculous. You're like, oh, Horford starts his drop five feet outside the line, and Curry dribbles right at him, and and Horford's on him. But Horford is not on him to guard him outside the line. He's on him to drop and keep Curry in front of him and keep the roll man in front of him, which is what the drop is trying to accomplish. And so, to me, it almost doesn't matter, like, how high the drop is. I think the thing the Celtics might want to consider is mixing up drop with maybe a slightly different coverage at the level of the screen. 
It doesn't have to be a hard hedge or a trap. But I think just throwing in a few different curveballs, because I'm with you, Cody. It sounds like we're on the same page. I don't dislike this idea from the Celtics. I think if you, if now, now maybe you could say they should try getting the ball out of his hands more and kind of see what happens within the flow of the game for his teammates. I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. But I think it's maybe a little bit of um, six and one half dozen. You know, like if they did it the other way, I don't know how different the off, different the offensive output would be than if they did it this way. Only by doing it this way, they put a huge, huge physical burden on Steph Curry and a psychological burden. You know, like he was so locked in in that game, uh, emotionally, physically, hit them all the swishes on his shots, the way he moved. Now to come back and have to do that again, I'm not sure I hate the strategy for the Celtics. I'm not even sure I dislike it. I think it's close either way. You got to pick your poison. There's a trade-off. And I think all I would try to do if I were the Celtics is sprinkle in slightly different looks and coverages here and there. I'm okay with them trying traps and blitzes at moments, especially um, especially if Draymond Green is not the screener. And I would even say Gary Payton, the second, is another one you want to watch out for. But if any of those other guys are are screening. I'm not sure I dislike it that much for a few possessions here and there. So, yeah, it is uh, It is fascinating to see what's going to happen going forward. Let's put it that way. So two points on this. One, I think one of the Curry counters you actually had in your video that just came out, and I think it's in the first quarter. Horford's playing, again, like a full step above the three-point line on this drop. So Curry, like, you know, he comes around the ball screen, and he goes like he's going to go downhill. So Horford starts backing up. Curry steps back when he's already like three feet behind the three-point line and pulls up from like 30 feet at that point and just buries it. And when you see a play like that, like you can't look at that and be like, oh, Horford shouldn't be dropping. It's like, all right, if this guy's going to beat us with step-back 30-footers, like yeah, exactly. that's we're going to live with that. Like it, we, we will be okay saying that we lost to literally the greatest shooting performance ever. Right. But my other point, the one defensive thing that I do think is a little worrisome with their drop, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, but that first play that we were just talking about with the white chase, I don't know if I love Boston dropping as much as they do on like the pin downs that the Warriors are playing on off ball screens. It feels like that their defenders are dropping way off and guys like Poole, Wiggins, not Curry as much because he's getting locked in by guys like White and Smart are getting some pretty open looks because there's the action going on. They curl around a screen, they catch it at the three point line and then boom, it's a pull up or they're able to get in for a nice pull up mid. And I think that's something that I would probably adjust is those off ball drops more. Okay, but this gets back to... Uh, why we haven't seen all the ping-ponging, ball movement, beautiful game stuff. Because they would rather, I think they would rather say, we're going to kind of stick to what our strengths are, especially with Rob Williams, who's not as mobile. Horford, by the way, it's amazing. Horford's not really a traditional drop big. We've seen him switch and get out and extend. It's just that Steph Curry is so underappreciated inside the three-point line. His quickness, and you talked about it, his handle, his change of pace. He's so good at blowing by these guys. He's been doing it for years. And even though he's a step slower now than he was five years ago, what's happened is his tempo's better. His change of pace is better. And now he's added the big sidestep, step back three in the last few seasons. And so just like with James Harden, when he has one of these big men who otherwise is pretty mobile, like taking that huge step back as a threat, 
and getting the big man leaning in one direction. I mean, you've seen it with Horford. You've seen it with Rob Williams. He goes by them like they're traffic cones. And he goes by them like they're traffic cones, not because they're slow. Go back and watch Horford switch on to all the other players he switched on to in the playoffs. The difference is he doesn't have to worry about them sidestepping from 30 feet. And that extra five feet of space and that extra direction in the plane of movement that he might be like, oh, I got to go. I got to go right. I got to go up. I got to go back. That changes everything. So same thing off ball to your point. I'm not sure if I were the Celtics, how much I would want to get into, you know, we've seen the Raptors do it in the finals. The Cavs have done it. So many teams have done it in the playoffs. Rob Williams on the play you're thinking of, the, the split action from the post, Curry gets a screen. He curls off for the three. What other teams have done is they've said, we want our big up at the screen, almost in denial. Like he's switching out and jumping out in front of the ball five feet outside the three-point line. And we're going to double that way. And that's when we get those slips. And then the pass goes to the cutter who slipped. And then the defense has to rotate. And then the pass goes to the corner. And then you get a wide open three or another drive and kick. And you get these lobs and dunks. That's when the Warriors are at their best. That's not the strength of the Celtics defense. So I almost wonder if the trade-off of like, well, we could overplay on Curry more and beat the, make the other guys beat us. And maybe if, you, if like data from Star Trek came down and said, eh, it's, it's not that different either way. I think the thing that's different for the Celtics is that gets them more out of their comfort zone. And you do see these possessions where um, the value of that trade-off pays off in a way that feels pretty big, right? Like Rob Williams blocking five shots in a game in 25 or 30 minutes he's out there might have a little bit of extra psychological effect. You see Draymond at the rim kicking it out Ben Simmons style when he has the layup, right? Like Clay Thompson's had a couple possessions where he wheeled, even Andrew Wiggins, who is an incredible athlete down there, like he's had a couple possessions where he wheels in. So the more I think about it, the more I'm okay with it. And I also kind of wonder if it's Boston picking the option that allows them to be more comfortable because they are artists at switching some of these off-ball screens. I mean, I might put together a compilation or something at some point in this series, but you will never see switches better. It it is just perfection. And I feel like if the trade-off is we got to give up some of these shots with a little extra airspace, maybe that's what they're willing to live with. I don't know if I made this point on an actual podcast or if it was one of our our post-show conversations. So I I apologize for repeating this if I said this before, but I think what's really interesting, and and it it goes on the point that you just said, but you, like, we can talk about all these things that's like, all right, in this instance, we should play this defense. In this instance, we should play this defense, et cetera, et cetera. It's funny because when you talk to people about basketball, I feel like one of the conversations is people is like, people are like, you need to just go off feel. Basketball is like, just go out there and go off instinct. But, like, if you watch this series, for instance, or you watch any high-level basketball, it can't just be off instinct. Like, there is so much mental processing going on, court mapping, knowing what the coverages they have to play, knowing the personnel that's on the court. And just the more cognitive load that you keep putting on players, that like, that adds to the amount of exhaustion that you're going to yes. be going through. Like you're gonna, And the more physically exhausted you're going to be, and this is the thing that completely blows my mind with Curry, is, is it doesn't feel like he ever gets physically exhausted, even though what he does is just, like, be the best conditioned NBA player maybe ever honestly and still is able to keep his court awareness and so that's the difficulty is when you start talking about these more and more complex coverages and things like that like it's not that you don't trust your players it's just like the human body can only take so much physical and mental and emotional sorts of 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 stress at one point before it just like gives up 
Shout out to John Havlicek on the all-time great conditioned athletes. That guy also was like a marathon runner. But Cody, I, I think that is that's it. That's everything, that point you just made. It's asking the Celtics not to come out of their comfort zone. One thing about the Cavs, um, and, and they were incredible in 2016 as the series went on, getting their coverages better. But you can just see how hard it is to ask players to play in this new style and how much that can fatigue them. And, and we've mentioned it before, the Rockets, like if, there, if there's a team that's going to miss 27 threes in a row at the end of a series, it's going to be at the end of a series guarding a team like this, not just Durant as a great scorer, not just Curry as a great scorer, but that style of movement and, and sort of perpetual mental focus. And Houston, Houston was a team that built their entire team to practice guarding, you know, their defensive scheme was to practice guarding a Golden State type attack. The Celtics, to some element, we said it before the series started, are not. They are absolutely at their best, I think, against more stationary attacks. Um, and we saw it with Giannis, just like that was that was such an awesome battle of, of greatness where you had Giannis's downhill pressure and everything he's trying to do on the glass as a role man, and then all your favorite Cody, the isolation clear-out possessions, and just the wall of defenders the Celtics can put at him. And then you say, like, well, we know when Giannis comes downhill, we have to help. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's the Celtics are unbelievable at that. And I don't know. We're almost done with the finals. I don't know where I'm going to end up if I had to make a pantheon of all-time great defensive teams relative to the league. But I do think the Celtics are an historically great defense they their defensive talent their adaptability and they're a really weird team usually teams that don't have incredibly great regular season indicators uh are like the beginning of a dynasty like the 1990 bulls or something uh they were very pedestrian for like half the season and then they started to pick it up and it crescendoed a season and a half later with the 1991 championship and the celtics of course as everyone knows by now were extremely pedestrian for like the first half of the season. But we're now in what has to be off the top of my head, a 50 or 60 game sample. And then you see Derek White uh, post-trade. We've seen this before with Rasheed Wallace going to the Pistons. The OG, the OG mid-season trade that did this was Dave DeBusher to the Knicks in 1970. 19, uh, I think they won the title in 70. I want to say the DeBusher trade was the same season. It may have been the season before. Either way, those trades finalized those defenses. Derek White, Celtics were already a great defense before the Derek White trade. Um, he takes it up even another notch because now your top seven players are all great defenders. And I don't remember how I got started on this, but all, all this is to say that this is a great defense. And I'm uh, not, even with all that said, I don't think their strength is chasing Golden State around. So I, I understand the choice. So. I'm going to put a pin on the uh, – not a pin. I'm going to finalize, I should say, our, like, physical exhaustion conversation and full circle to Curry. But do you remember in 2015 that Matthew Delavadova was literally hospitalized for severe cramping after guarding Curry after game three? Like, literally had to go to the hospital. I forgot about that. Because yeah. he guarded Stephen Curry too hard. <laughs> that is – 
That is unbelievable. Um, but when you talk about mid midseason changes and like the best defensive teams ever, you're right. Like that Pistons team is actually a really good comparison because the first part, I think it was like the first sixty or so games that they played without Rasheed Wallace, they were. I thought they were fine. Like they're good. Yeah, th- their numbers were okay. But yep. the post Sheed, they were like thirteen points or twelve points better than league average on defense with him. Yeah. And so it, it's the same sort of idea where you have this team starting off and you're like, yeah, this is a good enough team. They'll make some noise in the playoffs. And then they make w- whatever the changes. I guess the change for the Pistons was a lot more concrete because you'd be like, oh, it was Rasheed Wallace. Because you can't just be like Derek White changed their defense that much. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting comparison between those two teams. Yeah, and, and the Celtics in the playoffs, their um, defense relative to the opponent's regular season offense and who knows how fair that is because, you know, we know the Nets were a more complete team than what their fractured regular season was with Kyrie not playing and Durant in and out of the lineup. And there are other factors here. You know, the Bucks didn't have Middleton, but there's still minus seven as a playoff defensive rating, which is very, very good. And then in the regular season, um, we could we could have our, our crack stats department look it up, but I can't remember off the top of my head after like... After like February 1st, I want to say they were in that, not quite the Rashid Pistons, but it was ridiculous. Like their defensive rating was like four or five points ahead of the second best defensive rating in that period. So we started off this episode saying that the biggest story was Steph Curry, his big game. Now that we're talking about defense, I think a huge thing that goes into game five, and honestly, it's to me like the the biggest thing that we have to know before this is what Rob Williams's health is going to be like. Yes, because he has been so key to their defense. And I think you you sent a clip of Rob Williams just straight line jogging, jogging before he asked to be taken out. And it was it was laborious. Like you compare that to like a first or second quarter. I was going back and looking at that. He was running just fine. But by the fourth quarter, it it did not look like he was even like 30% of his physical form. So I think that completely changes the rest of the series if he's not able to come back and do what he's been doing. Yeah. As of recording this, we have no information on his status, of course. It's been choppy throughout the playoffs, um, coming off the meniscus injury and then the injury, a second knee injury, uh, a bruise in the Milwaukee series. And in the game you're talking about, game four, that that moment, I think late in the fourth quarter, he he's dragging his leg up the court. I mean, it's not a minor drag. Like, he, he really can't run. And then I think what I heard uh, from reports after the game was that he basically asked out. He basically checked himself out of the game after that point at the next dead ball whistle. So I agree, Cody, uh, because the downgrade here for the Celtics to Tice is enormous in this series. Tice doesn't have the same vertical spacing on offense, holding defenders in the dunker spot because of Rob Williams as a lob threat and because of Rob Williams as an offensive rebounder. And then, of course, the shot blocking on defense, which is, um, you know, Rob Williams is not a complete defensive player, but he is a phenomenal shot blocker. He is just like a transcendently good shot blocker. So yeah, that moving forward could be a big deal. And it'll be interesting, actually, if for some reason Rob isn't available at all or is only available for limited minutes. We've seen this where he looks great in one game and then um, a game or two, he's kind of off. It'll be interesting to see how much they go with Tice how much we see small ball with Pritchard or if he just tightens the lineup and you just get 40 minutes of Derek White, 45 minutes from the Jays, 
that's stuff we sometimes see at the end of an NBA final. So I, I don't know what, but I agree that's a that's a huge story moving forward. I'm trying to scan this article really quickly so I don't misattribute anything, but it looks like Satch Sanders, who played with Bill Russell, compared yeah. Rob Williams to Bill Russell's defensive impact. And I'm, I'm not going to quite go there. I, I respect it. I love that this is an article. I'm not going to quite go there. But I, I do have to say it's not even the shot blocking because obviously some of the, the, the blocks that Williams had is, I mean, you can make a highlight reel of just those. It's the rim deterrence too. Like the number of shots that, I mean, I think there are a couple plays like Wiggins like gets deep into the post and it looks like he wants to do his post fade, but he can see that Williams is hanging out there. Draymond talked about this before. He's obviously really not looking for his shot in the paint, but anytime Williams is down there, um, he's really not going to try and get that shot up but a couple of the blocks he's having it's not like he's just standing at the rim like his recovery blocks like when you talk about like the the expected value for a defensive play like he's starting at the top of the key and rotating down to meet someone at the rim and when you constantly have a team that is thinking like like having to look over your shoulder and be like oh is he coming is he there uh that Again, the cognitive load, not having to think about that is just a huge boon. And when we talk about Tice being a rung down, nothing against Tice. Like, Tice is a a fine defender. It's just Rob Williams is legitimately a special rim deter and rim protector uh, and it's it's been showing in, in this series so far. Yeah, and I think the other Celtics story we have to get to before we get out the door here today on Game 4, there's been a lot of talk about the Jays, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and then specifically some of the decision-making, um, things like that. I, I don't know about you, Cody. I think that the Celtics and their offense at the end of games kind of slowing down, um, it's one of these things that happens a lot in basketball. It happens more than, you know, the, people complain about it and then they don't realize they're complaining about the same thing over and over again and every team fan base complains about it. It's like there's a reason it's happening. And it's not just the players have given up or are confused or something like that. But, you know, the question is, how correctable is it? How much of it is self-inflicted? Is it just fatigue? Because a lot of these possessions, what's happening is um, they're taking time getting over the over the timeline. In fact, there were two. There were actually two possessions in the first half of the game that were eight second violations that no one noticed. One of them was a nine second violation. I think the shot clock hit 15 as Tatum was bringing it across Hmm. or smart, whoever was bringing it across. And then so then you get about seven or eight seconds off the clock before you really start the action. And then you're deciding, am I hunting Curry? And in game four, it was Curry and Poole were on the court sometimes when the offense defense didn't sync up with Draymond. And then they were like, wait, no, maybe we'll hunt Poole. And those little decisions where someone's away from the ball, he gets called up for a screen, then he yells, no, 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 you call the other guy for a screen. That takes like four or five seconds sometimes to kind of coordinate what the heck is happening. And then you have one action and you have eight on the clock and then that's pretty much it. And so if that first action is cut off and you don't get something good, you get this like kind of feeling like desperation, clogged up, stagnant offense because it is. But I'm not sure what the answer is in those moments other than just to push and play with pace. Um, In other words, I'm not sure if there's like an individual player that I would blame versus just saying in those moments... We have to play with pace. We have to know what we're running. We have to be decisive with what we're running. And we've talked about it all postseason. Tatum is at his best when he's on his move, on the move, catching and going. And if you take 12 or 15 seconds of the shot clock to try to get some switch or isolation, of course it's going to feel stagnant because it is switch hunting isolation basketball. 
And sometimes it feels like miscommunication. There was a play in the second quarter yep. where Smart like holds the ball for like legitimately like 18 seconds, and it feels like he's having a conversation with White in the corner. He might be calling him up. White, I think, is calling for I don't know who's up next to. Maybe it's Brown to set like a ball screen. And it's Smart finally just like attacks Wiggins off the bounce, and like that's the possession. So things like that happen sometimes. Say what what you were saying is in in getting into their actions earlier. I think it might have been the third quarter. It might have been the fourth quarter. Honestly, uh, the Warriors get a twenty four second violation on the Celtics, and they don't really start the set till about sixteen or seventeen seconds left on the shot clock. And it's a very Tatum centric set. It's it's Tatum trying to get by. I think he gets the loony switch. He tries to drive by. Poole helps over and cuts him off. They try and reset it. All of a sudden, like things bog down and Tatum pulls up and, and throws up an air ball. So I think you're right. I think pushing the pace, and I think that's something that the Warriors really picked up on early for themselves, is when they push the pace. That's one thing Draymond has been trying to do to assert himself, is really pushing the pace. I think there's a lot of times where he gets the ball either on a rebound or even an inbound. He's sprinting down the court. He's trying to catch the Boston Celtics kind of scattered and not being able to let them set up their half-court defense. So I think that's definitely part of it. But again, like it gets difficult to start pushing the pace when these games are are getting going on and on and you're you're exerting so much energy in so many different ways or or if it's not um in your comfort zone you know curry and jordan pool and even clay thompson in transition uh those guys have made many many millions of dollars playing that way right i guess pool not yet but tatum not necessarily and marcus smart not necessarily and al horford and Derek white not necessarily. And so I think that can be the difference. Um, Tatum, the, I think his passing for a lot of the series has been really, really key and really, really strong. It's interesting to me that so many people are on the Jalen Brown's been their best players, best player in the series. I don't know if we want to circle the wagons on that at all. But the thing I was going to say about Tatum is if he were a more fluid elite rim finisher with his body taking... If he were a 6'8 John Morant, maybe that's too much because John Morant's kind of like a miniature Michael Jordan in the air. But, you know, if he if he had that ability to bend and twist and score at the basket easily, I think we would be talking about him probably as the best player in the league, and I think we would have more conversations about his historical status as a, as a peak NBA player. The fact is, that's not his strength. Um, he's big, he's broad, he's incredibly skilled, he's he's an excellent defender, he's come a long way as a passer, so he's a multi-dimensional offensive weapon, but his strength is not finishing at the basket. If anything, it's a weakness relative to his status as an overall offensive player. And I think that's something we've seen in the series. I don't know what his rim finishing numbers are right now. We could pull them up in a second. But I, I did hear a stat, something like 27% shooting on two-pointers after game three or game four. And I think a lot of that is Wiggins and his size and length, making sure you have Looney in there. Draymond has had a couple great defensive games. And all of those things are just going to make it harder for Tatum to get easy buckets. And then the last thing there is transition. If you don't turn the ball over, if you don't get easy buckets in transition, um, you won't be able to pad your your layup stats, basically. It's something that if it's not part of your game, it's hard to manufacture. More on Tatum's scoring, too. He's shooting 12% on long mid-range shots, according to PVP. Say that again? He is shooting 12% on long mid-range shots during this series. I don't think that's very good. No. 
I mean, Steph Curry's shooting 73%. I think a 60 percentage point gap is what you would call not ideal. Uh, so that, that might be something that would help if, if Tatum was, was hitting those at a higher clip. Well, so over, if, if you look at the mid-range and you include short mid-range, um, so like five feet out to 20, 23 feet, um, Curry is at 50% in the series. Clay Thompson's at 40% in the series. And then Jason Tatum is at 19% mm. in the series. Mm. Um, I, ha- I do have the rim finishing numbers. Tatum only has three attempts, rim finishing attempts, every 75 possessions, and he's shooting 50%. It's been hard to hard to score at the rim. And you know who's scored well at the rim in this series? Cody, a guy we've gone way too long without talking about. I apologize. I apologize to everyone in the Looney family. I apologize to all of... Uh, of UCLA folks out there. I guess I'm one of those people. I, I went to UCLA technically. Um, Te- technically. Technically, yeah. Technically. Yeah, technically. I graduated from UCLA. Ah. Kavon Looney. Mm-hmm. Kavon Looney, 83% at the rim in this series. And I think the fact that he can finish, he can rebound on both sides of the court. And he Golden State does not have a lot of rim protection. But when he's in there, he at least gives them some decent rim protection, and a big body. And especially with Tatum, if he turns the corner and has to run into Looney, if he turns the corner and has to run into Wiggins, if he's being guarded by Wiggins and has to run into Looney, that combination, I think, has been very effective. And we looked at the net ratings of the series, and the Warriors' best players, their most effective combinations, have been Steph Curry, Kavon Looney, and I can't remember the third player right now. It's so embarrassing. I can't. I can't think of it either. Want to Either way. Okay. I don't know if you want to stall. Oh, Andrew Wiggins. Oh, Andrew, Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins. Thanks. Yeah. We yeah. just talked about him. Yeah. God. So this if is, this, if, is, this is what happens when all the all the games bleed together. Anyway, go ahead. If, if, Sass, if Satch Sanders is comparing Rob Williams to, to Bill Russell, I think it's more than fair to say that Looney has had his Nate Thurman moments. Like, you see him out there and you're like, oh, did we transplant like 60 years ago? Is this a classic Russell Thurman battle right now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe that's going too far with the with the Nate Thurman comparison. Um, nah. Anything? I, oh, go ahead. I, I want to finish up this Brown Tatum conversation okay. uh, because I do think that one thing when you watch them, I think that Brown stands out as being more dynamic because when he gets his drives, we've talked about this quite a bit actually. He's really tremendous at straight line drives to the basket. He's got a, he's got a great first step. He's explosive. He made a couple just wild scoop shots, one in transition, one with his offhand. And so you see those and they stand out and you're like, man, Brown is bringing a lot of moxie to this offense. And he is. He's, he's been a more efficient scorer. But I think the passing and patience on drives is what's been separating Tatum and Brown on offense. And I feel like Brown doesn't have the probing ability that Tatum has been showcasing a little bit. And I think a big part about the probing is that Tatum's able to, to make the, the defense rotate and then he's able to find and hit open players. And, and I broke down some of their passing that they've been making, where they, the location of where they've been finding or getting their assists. 65% of Tatum's assists during the series have been on three-pointers, whereas 33% of Brown's assists have been on three-pointers. Furthermore, Brown's percentage of short mid-range and long mid-range assists is significantly higher than Tatum's. So it seems like like Brown is getting a lot of assists assists in a lot of these locations that aren't necessarily as... Um, 
as valuable, as high value as the ones that Tatum is getting. And I think that is a byproduct of Tatum being able to keep his handle and kind of making the defense adjust a little bit more before he makes a move. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if I have like a, a horse in this race, per se, especially only after four games of the series. And I've talked recently about the fascinating topic of sort of analyzing players in very small samples. But I do think you're, you're on to the kind of uh, dynamic going on here, which is neither of them have been perfect, but Brown's tough shot making has been huge. His scoring numbers will still not great. 23 points per 75 on minus 1% true shooting relative to the Warriors' normal defense in this series. But his playmaking obviously hasn't been as valuable as Tatum's, which in the two Celtics wins has been pretty phenomenal. And then Tatum, his scoring numbers have been basically terrible for a player of his status. 21 points per 75 on minus 8% true shots. Antoine Walker territory. Uh, but his playmaking has been valuable. And, and you know, the, if the Celtics could just get a little bit more out of both of them at the same time, maybe they would be good. But the thing is, this Cody, this series has been really, really close. And it feels to me, looking forward to the final few games, that the thing I've been saying as the series has gone on and even before the series, I just keep coming back to, which is that the Celtics still feel like, in a way, like a, a traditionally on-paper better team by a little bit. But then what Golden State's trying to do is just... They've got they've got all this championship medal, and you saw it with Curry, and you saw it with Clay, and they just got to make shots and and have big games, and the whole thing is kind of like a coin flip. Um, the numbers after four games are are still incredibly close in the series. The total points in the series, the offensive ratings of both teams, I talked about that kind of like one ten magic number for the Celtics. I think the Warriors and the Celtics offensive ratings after after the four games are are pretty close. I want to say they're like 112. Once again, this is something we could probably look up. 111 for Golden State and 111 for Boston. And they've scored almost the exact same number of points in the series. So so it has been everything we've thought. Um, and I still feel like anything can happen going forward. I want to... I didn't slip this in earlier. I want I want to get this this stat out because it's it's wild to me. So it's a Curry stat. All right, talking about Curry again. Full circle here. Four players in this series, according to PVP stats, four players have hit an unassisted three. Okay, Curry, Brown, Poole, Tatum. Okay, Curry has sixteen unassisted that's threes. Non- that's nonsense. Derek White hit an unassisted three right in Curry's face. In game one, that How wasn't off a pa- it wasn't off a pass. It's off a pass. It's one of those phony assists. You know what I'm. You know what I'm. Saying. But it counted anyway, as an assist. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to derail your point. Keep going. So by the the stats, which are always 100 percent correct because hand tracking is infallible. He Curry has hit 16 of them. The other three have a combined 12. The other three have a combined 12. So Curry's shot making from three pointer. Just to put a just to put a pin in that conversation. Just to put a cap on it. I, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna make these available uh, for the rest of the series for Patreon subscribers, uh, deluxe members over there. Patreon.com/slash/thinkingbasketball. That is the best way to directly support this show. And what you'll see there uh, is the normal backpicks box score that you get throughout the season and the playoffs. But you'll get it for this series, and so you'll be able to go in and see that Steph is the leader in box plus minus. That's stunning. Um, and you'll be able to see, Cody, that his scoring numbers in the series are 35 points 
per 75 possessions on plus 11% true shooting. And um, I'm just, if you're not familiar with basketball stats, I'm just going to tell you that's about as good as, that's about as good as you can do. That's ridiculous. So patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is the best way to support this show. Remember, if you are interested in a career in basketball, sportsbusinessclassroom.com is the place to go. Use the sign up code thinking basketball. If you're listening to the podcast, sign up code thinking basketball, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Thanks so much for listening all the way through on this one. Hope you enjoyed it, that you are enjoying this scintillating series. And as always, that you are having a great day.